The title of this morning's message is, is called The Uniqueness of Christ. And actually, I believe that uh, I've preached a similar, uh, well, a sermon with a similar title before. And uh, this title and this kind of concept keeps coming back to me because Christ is unique. Um, there were none like him before him. There will be none like him after him. And he's just unique. And uh, this morning, I want to spend a significant time. Um, this morning's message is going to be slightly different. Uh, we're going to take the first part of the message, and I'm going to really just walk through the text. Uh, I don't even have it written down here in front of me. I'm going to explain what the author is doing in that text. We're going to spend a very brief amount of time with that uh, because it, it's not real difficult uh, what he's trying to do. But there are some sort of hidden gems in the text uh, that I'm going to call out. But what I want to do is I want to spend more time uh, with application and soul searching, if you will. I don't like to use that phrase too often because it sounds sort of hippie and kind of new agey, if you will. Uh, but what I mean by that is I want us to, to reflect upon our own uh, spiritual state in Christ. Um, and I want us to think about where we are in Christ if we are in Christ, and what that looks like. And I, I, want, I want us to be able to answer uh, the question, and want to be able to answer the question, I want us to be able to answer this question with confidence and with joy, that if, I want you to imagine right now, that if your child, or a grandchild, or a friend, uh, who is a babe in Christ, or not even a Christian, came up to you and said, and asked you, are you saved? And you answer the question, yes, I'm saved. And then they ask this question, how do you know? I want you to be able to answer that with confidence, and I want you to be able to answer it in a biblical way. Um, because far too often, I believe we, when asked, how do we know that we're saved, or how are we saved, that we give worldly examples, we give moralism instead of gospel-centered answers. And so I want us to be able to tell the difference, because the difference matters. And so whether you're in elementary school or middle school, whether you're in high school, you need to be able to answer this question. And if you can't answer this question, then what that means is, is we need to reflect to decide to determine this. Are, are we even saved? Are we believers? Or are we just kind of going through the process? And I, I pinpoint children because they're, they're here on the front row and I see them. Real, but this is for adults as well. I know many adults and have heard many testimonies of adults. Um, even those who are in the ministry, those who are, who are in the ministry, who have said that they were in ministry for many, many years before they determined, before the, le the Lord convicted them, that they weren't actually saved, that they had been doing church things, religious things, they had lived a moral life, but they had not been living a Christian life. And I want you to know that there's a difference between what is a moral life and what is a Christian life. There is a difference between those two things, and we need to know that. Now, that's not exactly what the author is talking about today. 
But I think you'll see where I'm pulling this from, um, that I'm not pulling it out of thin air. I'm not trying to read something into the text that's not actually there. There, there, is, there is an aspect of this message that goes there. So uh, would you stand with me this morning? I know we've been standing a lot, but I, I do believe that we honor the Lord as we stand in the reading of His Word. And we're going to be in chapter 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. And this is what the author of Hebrews writes. He says, Therefore, holy brothers, and that could be read holy brothers or sisters, and sisters there. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's, in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Let's pray. Father, bless us this morning through the reading of your word, as you already have. Father, I pray that as, we, as, that I, as I minister to the congregation through the preaching of your word, that, that I honor you and that, I'm, that I am speaking correctly without error here. And that uh, people would be moved to rejoice. That people would be moved to repentance. And that we might all be uh, grow more faithful to the proclamation of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So... Just as a brief recap, the, the author of Hebrews has been uh, telling us, informing us uh, how amazing Jesus is. I need to be quite blunt, that's what he's doing. He's just telling us how amazing Jesus is. And it, even if you go back here to the first chapter, it says um, in verse 3, He, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the the universe by the word of His power. We read that again last week, too. I think it bears uh, bears enough weight to read that almost every Sunday that we come together and read this uh, read from Hebrews. And so, what He's doing is He's going through the through through this sort of this argument, similar to what Paul does in Romans, talking about how glorious Christ is and how unique Christ is. Uh, I mean, unique unique Christ is something special. All right. Now that may seem like well, that's the understatement of the century, right? And it is, because Christ is, is, there's just something about Jesus. There's something about that name, right? Uh, there is no other name by which we are saved, right? Um, and it's only in Christ. And we see that in John. We see it throughout the Gospels. We see Paul arguing for it. In fact, I would even argue that we see that in the Old Testament, specifically with Isaiah preaching the Gospel before Christ was ever incarnated. And so there, there's glory in the name of Christ and in the person of Christ, And the author begins by saying that Christ is more worthy, 
and greater than the angels. Now, if you remember me talking a few, a few months ago now, that, that there were some that really revered angels and believed that they, they, they kind of stood on this pedestal. And that some put them at the same level of Christ. And the author here is very clear that angels are not on the same level of, as Christ. Because what is created can never usurp the one who created it. And that's Christ. I mean, Christ is, uh, he is upholding the universe. God spoke through Christ and things came into being. And so the angels cannot, uh, they, they cannot stand against Christ, Right? Well, here we are with Moses now. And so what, what the author is going to do over the next several verses and couple chapters is he's going to now uh, tell us that while Moses and Joshua should be revered and were wonderful, uh, wonderful uh, proclaimers of a proto-gospel, if you will, that they are not Christ that they are not Christ, that Christ is worth, worthy of more honor and more glory than Moses and Joshua. And he's going to explain that in these verses that we talked about today. So what I want to do is I want to walk through that, this, and I want to pinpoint just a couple things. There's a couple phrases that the author uses. He calls Jesus an apostle. Now, that's kind of odd, right? I thought Paul and John and those guys were apostles, but he calls Jesus an apostle. We're going to look at that. Because I think there's a hidden gem there. And he calls him a high priest, which we've already talked about a little bit. And then at the end of this passage, it says, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And so we're going to kind of pull this apart a little bit. So let's just walk through briefly this passage. I'm going to highlight a few things. I'm going to focus in on a few things. And then what I want us to do is I want to go to the end of that passage and look at our confidence and hope and see how we can answer that question when one of our kids or grandkids or a friend or somebody like that asks us if we are saved, how do we know we are saved, how do we answer that with confidence and uh, biblical integrity, okay? So we don't just sound like the world. So it says here, therefore, holy brothers. Now, just real quick, when he says therefore, he's referring back to the previous passage where we've already preached from and where the author is saying that Jesus is, the, uh, is our redeemer. He is the propitiation of our sins. He is bearing the wrath of God for our sins. And we are brothers and sisters of Christ, all right, in this passage, all right? And so he's walking through that. And then he says, therefore, holy brothers, uh, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. So he's asking us to consider Jesus. In fact, this is the main point of the text right here. All right. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right. The apostle and a high priest of our confession. We're going to come back to that. Okay. But just remember that the author is calling Jesus an apostle and a high priest of our confession. Now, when he uses the word confession, what he means about that is he means the gospel. The gospel we proclaim, the gospel we believe in, the gospel that we have trusted in, and the gospel that we confess, all right? We confess Christ is our Savior. And it says, Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him, who appointed him, so referring to God here, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. So right now, the author is comparing Jesus and Moses. 
And he's saying that both of these characters were faithful. Both of them were faithful. Jesus was faithful to the mission, to the appointment which God appointed him, to the calling to which God had called him to. And Moses was faithful, and it says here, in all of God's house. Now, we're going to find out what that means here in a little bit, but let me just kind of spill the beans. When, when he is referring to God's house, what he means is he's not talking about a literal house. He's talking about the people of God, that Moses was faithful to the people of God. Now, what was he faithful in? That's the question. Because Moses messed up. Moses messed up on multiple occasions. Moses was not perfect, like somebody else we're going to talk about. What was Moses faithful in? Moses was faithful in delivering the law to the people. He was faithful in delivering the law to the people, preaching that law to the people, and trying to basically uh, rally these folks, kind of like herding a bunch of cats, if you will, right? And that's what he was faithful in. Even though he wasn't perfect, he was faithful in that. So he was faithful in God's house. Another way of saying this is that he stood above the people of God's house, the people in God's house, God's people. He stood above them and directed them and taught them and loved them. And so he had prominence there. And then he says this in verse 3, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. So they were both faithful, but Jesus has been counted with more glory than Moses. Now, why might that be? Here's why. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And then here's a parenthetical statement. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. So why would Jesus be counted with more glory than Moses if they were both faithful? Well, here's why. Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Delivering the law, preaching somewhat of an early gospel, if you will. Okay? He was faithful in all of God's house. But remember that Moses was still a part of God's house. Moses was a part of the people of God. He was with them. He was amongst them. Jesus is the builder of that house. Jesus is the builder of that house. So that's why Jesus stands above even Moses here. So he says here, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So Jesus has more honor than those who are in the house. And then here's this parenthetical statement. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. By the way, there's one of those little hidden nuggets where the author is basically proclaiming that Jesus is God. The builder of all things is God. And then in verse 5, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Moses was called out to lead the people of God out of Egypt to deliver the law, right? And so he was a servant in God's house. But Christ, verse 6, is faithful over God's house as a son. So let me read that again. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant. He's in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Christ is the son of God. 
He is more worthy than Moses. He was over God's house because he built God's house. He built the people of God. He gave his life for the people of God. Here's another little nugget here. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. What is that? Well, I see that as being spoken later as, as the gospel. He is testifying to things that are going to be spoken later, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that message in which Jesus is going to bring. And then he finishes here, and we are his house. So we are part of this house. If indeed, and there's a, there's a, there is a condition here, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, and some manuscripts say firm to the end. All right, so that's this perseverance concept. Now, what are the nuggets that I want to pull out here that I think are important for this morning's message? I want to go back to the beginning here where it says this, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our, uh, of our confession. What does that mean? Well, let's look at apostle first. All right, so here's the first point. What is an apostle? An apostle is somebody who brings a message. Brings the message. So Paul was an apostle. He was bringing the message. He was bringing the gospel, if you will. He was bringing the good news uh, of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the interesting thing about Jesus. All right. Christ is the apostle bearing a message from God, the good news from God. And here's the interesting thing is that this message is the word of God who is Christ himself. So Paul was bringing the message that was preached from Christ, but Christ is that message. In John, we see that, that Jesus was the word of God, right? And so here we have the messenger, and the message is what? The message is himself, right? In fact, there's a great book by John Piper that's called God is the Gospel, God is the gospel. It's a great little book, really short, but very clear on what the gospel is and why it is so important. And so here is Jesus, called, rightly called an apostle, because he's bringing a message, a vital message for the salvation of sinners. The only thing different between Paul and Christ is that whereas Paul was bringing a message about Christ, Christ was bringing himself. In a sense, Jesus was this message packaged all in one. And so that's the first point. Christ is bringing the gospel here. And the second part of that is it says here that Christ is the apostle and the high priest of our confession of the gospel. Now, what does that mean by when he's saying the high priest? Well, what was the role of the high priest? The role of the high priest was to mediate the sacrifices for the people of God. So they would stand in the temple or in, a, in the, in the, in the sacrifi sacrificial arena, and they would perform a sacrifice on behalf of the people of God to basically wash away sin, if you will, to, to atone for sin. And so they would take a bull or they would take some other sacrifice. They would sacrifice it on behalf of the people. And then that was a symbolic gesture towards uh, the cleansing of sin. And ultimately it was pointing to Jesus. Now, why can we rightly say that Jesus is a high priest? Because of this, Jesus is a high priest because Jesus is providing a sacrifice on behalf of the people of God. The only difference is, is that he is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. Folks, he is more worthy than Moses because Moses was bringing the message. Jesus is the message. 
He is more worthy than Moses and Joshua because he is not just a high priest. He is the high priest that is providing the sacrifice in himself. That makes him more worthy. This is why Jesus is so unique. No one else could fill the shoes of Jesus. Now, many of you all have seen where David Skaggs and I and others, David's looking up at me just like, why are you roping me into this dude? Um, Have been talking about this new show on Netflix called The American Gospel. Now, if you've not seen it, get your family and sit around it. Bring tissues, but don't have hammers around or you'll throw them through the TV. You'll see, you'll know what I mean when you watch it, okay? And what it is, the point of that show is basically talking about how the American gospel, the American gospel, by the way, is not a good thing. That's not what they're referring to here. They're referring to this idea of the prosperity gospel and this health and wealth gospel. Now, here is one of the things that stood out. There is a, and I'm not even going to call him a pastor, uh, there is a charlatan by the name of Kenneth Copeland. And one of the things that he referred to that he felt that he said he got a message from God about was that he, because of some sort of deranged, convoluted relationship to Jesus, that he, had he known how, could have done the exact same thing that Jesus had done for us. Am I right in saying that? That's what Kenneth Copeland said that he could have done the same exact thing that Jesus had done for us. Meaning that he could have filled Jesus' shoes. I am glad that I was several zip codes away when he made that statement. Folks, that is blasphemy. Christ is unique. And that's what the author is saying here. You all revere angels You all revere Moses here in a little bit. You all revere Joshua, and rightly so. We're not taking that away from them. They were faithful. They were faithful. They honored God. They weren't perfect, but they muddled through, and they honored God in their life, preaching a message that that hadn't even come to complete fruition yet because Christ had not arrived. They were faithful, but they were not Jesus because Jesus is unique. Jesus was the gospel coming forth. Jesus was the high priest delivering his people from their sin by offering up himself. And so what is that message? It's this. The message is this. It is that God is holy. Don't miss this. God is holy. We were created by God to bear His image. We were created to love, to serve, and to worship the God of the heavens. That's why we were created. We were not created because God had a deficiency or was in need of something, and we were the only things that could fill that hole. That is also massive heresy. We were created in love for God's glory. That's why we were created, by a holy God. But we sinned. We wanted to be like God, and in our desire to be like God, 
We fell, we sinned, and the world is broken, and now original sin is now encasing all of life around us. That's the bad news. The good news is that God is rich in mercy, that God is rich in love and in grace, and to redeem us, to reconcile us, a sinful creature, to himself He sends His Son, His only Son, to live a perfect life and to bear our sin in death on a cross. The sacrifice, if you will, that the high priest was pointing to in the Old Testament, He has now become that sacrifice that is sufficient and efficient to take away all sin forever. He died on the cross, he was buried, and he was raised to new life, having victory over death. And now what does Jesus call us to do? Let me make this very clear. Jesus' calling to us is this, repent and believe in the name of Christ. His calling to us was not give a lot of money. His calling to us was not do a lot of good. His calling was us what to us was never miss was not never miss church. His calling to us was repent and believe in the name of Jesus. And you will be saved. Now that sounds easy. But that is hard. And that's why I've said this over and over again. You cannot repent of your sins, turning from sin and following Christ, unless you are compelled by the Father. It says only the Father draws us. The only way that we can repent and believe in the name of Christ is if we are compelled by Christ to do so. Because none of us want Christ outside of Christ. So that's where I'm going to go to the end of this passage. So the, what is the crux of this whole passage? It's this. Christ is unique, and he is worthy of more honor than Moses. Why? Because he is not just in the house. He is the builder of the house, and he is not just a servant. He is the son of God. Good summary right there. Not only that, he is not just bringing a message. He is the message. He is the word of God. All right. He is not just any high priest. He is the high priest that would sacrifice himself. Summary, right there. Bam. Okay. Who cares? It's because of this in this last statement. And we are his house if, if I could say it this way, we are part of the family of God. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. And I would say our hope is who? Christ and the gospel, which can't be divorced from one another. So here's how I want to include this message. I want to say this. How do we know that we are a part of God's house? Or if somebody comes and asks you, mamaw, papaw, uncle, aunt, you know, mom, dad, whatever. I'm thinking of little kids because these are, the, these are the people that are asking these questions. And isn't it true that the hardest questions 
come from our kids? That's where they come from. Have you ever, have they ever asked you a question? And you're just like, I don't know. Right. And you know, sometimes like, where do babies come from? You know, something like that. And you're all of a sudden freaking out. Right. You're like, no, you're only 15. Anyway. So, <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, right. They will ask us questions and we, we don't have an answer and that's okay. Sometimes this is not a place where we cannot have an answer. We must have an answer for this one. How do you get saved? How do you know you're saved? Here are the common answers that we give. I want you to listen to this. I want you to hear what I'm asking, what I'm saying here, and I want to know, have you ever said this? Or right now sitting where you are, if somebody asks you that, would this be your response? Somebody comes and asks you, how do you know you're saved? Or how can, I, how can you be saved? And you say this, because I'm a moral person and I try to do good things. I lived a good life. In comparison to everybody else, I did good. That's a common answer. That's a very common answer. Or number two, because I go to church every Sunday. I even go on Wednesdays. I even suffer through that pastor's Google Meets. Or because I tithe to the church. That's the Kenneth Copeland answer, right? You touched the screen and donated via credit card, right? I tithe to the church. I give every Sunday. I'm the biggest giver at that church. That's how I know I'm a Christian. Because I walked the aisle when I was young. That's a common answer. Because I remember walking that aisle. I did it with VBS. I did it with four of my friends. We all just got up and walked that aisle and then following that, because I said the prayer, the prayer. Or because I got baptized. How do I know I'm saved? How, how am I saved? Because of those things. Those are common answers. Those are not the right answer. And if we truly believe that that's how we are saved then we are lost. Now, I want to be very clear about something. These things, none of these things are bad. They're all wonderful things. But I would say that they are the fruit of being saved. They are not how we are saved. I've met some individuals who've been baptized four or five times. They aren't any more saved the last time than they were the first time. So what's the real answer? What's the biblical response? Well, first, it begins with Christ. So I'm not going to give you some sort of just general response. I'm going to read Scripture. And we first look at the work. How are we saved? Well, let's look at the work of Christ. 1 John 4.10, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation of our sins. That's the work of Christ that is accomplished on our behalf. Without that, we are not saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We haven't done anything there. We didn't do anything in 1 John. We didn't do anything in Ephesians. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are saved not by our work, but by the work of Christ. That is what saves us. That's what we have confidence in. Or in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, oftentimes when somebody says, uh, how are you saved? The answer starts out by saying this, I, 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 I. When somebody asks how you are saved, you can't begin that answer by saying I. You begin the answer saying Jesus. Jesus did this for me. Jesus did this for me. I was a sinner. I was lost. I was dead in my transgressions, but Jesus gave his life. How do we know we are saved? How are we saved? Because of Jesus. But let's look at the fruit. So the work is of Christ, but the fruit is on our behalf, right? And so it says here in Mark 1, 14, 14, 15, because of the work of Jesus, we can now say this. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Nowhere does it say anything about tithing. Nowhere in there does it say anything about walking little old ladies across the street. Nowhere in there does it say that you have to have perfect attendance to church. What does he say? Repent and believe in the gospel. Now you might be saying, pastor, that is something I'm doing. That's something I'm doing. And what I'm telling you is, yeah, it's something you're doing as a result of what Christ has already done for you. You can't repent and believe unless Christ compels you. If Christ did not give, you, give his life for us, there's nothing to repent and believe in. Or Romans 10.9, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And you say, Pastor, there's that prayer that I was taught. Yep, you could call that a prayer. That's a confession. And no one is genuinely confessing that unless Christ has already compelled them through the work of the Holy Spirit drawing them. No one genuinely calls on the name of Christ without being regenerated. And finally, Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. <sighs> Baptism, this prayer, repentance and belief, these are all, every one of these, are responses to the work that Christ has already done in us. So when we get that question, when somebody asks you this, how do you know you're saved? Then here's your response. It has nothing to do with I go to church. I want you to come to church. I want you to tithe. I want you to pray. I mean, I, I, I want you to, I mean, walk in the aisle. There's nothing wrong with that. I walk the aisle. We want you to be baptized. But here's how we are saved. Christ died for our sins. And in doing so, he calls us to turn from our sin and to believe upon the name of Jesus.
we repent and we believe in the name of Christ for for the glory of God because of what Christ has done for us. And if I could put it this way, there is no amount of baptisms, there's no amount of money, there's no amount of good works, there's no amount of good church attendance that is going to do enough to get you into heaven, to get you into the presence of God. Only Christ can do that. Only Christ can do that. Which means we, because of what Christ has done, give everything over to Him. We give everything over to Him. So as we go forward this morning, what do I want for us? As Gospel Life Community Church, we need to have a very clear answer to the question, how we are saved. Wouldn't it be sad if we called ourselves Gospel Life Community Church, but we don't actually know the gospel? That'd be bad. Do you know how many individuals have gone, were raised in the church their entire life, but don't know the gospel? They don't know the gospel because the gospel was never really preached or taught. This is why we teach and we preach the gospel over and over and over again. Because the gospel is not just for lost people. It's for saved people. You and I need to be reminded day in and day out of why we were saved. Lest we start boasting in something that we've done. We need to be reminded of how depraved we are outside of Christ. Whether we are 10 or 20, 30, 40, or 90, it does not matter how old we are. We need to be reminded of how depraved we are outside of Christ and how awesome Jesus is. Jesus is unique. Jesus is unique. There is no one like Christ, as this author can attest to. And so as we go forward, let, us, let, let that be the message that we proclaim. Remember here where he was talking about that we have holding fast to our confidence. Imagine if your confidence is in your works. Because when we say things like, because I'm a good person and I go to church and I tithe, what we're saying is our confidence is in our works, not in Jesus. But when we say, I am saved because of Jesus... We have got to be able to answer that question. And so young people, I'm talking to the little ones now. Here's the thing, all right? Some of you all are so little and so young that you're just running like little perfections right around here, right? All the parents would agree with that, right? All little kids, they've never done anything wrong, right? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) okay. But here's the truth. Every one of us are sinners, Every one of us are sinners, and every one of us need Christ. Every one of us. So we we need to think about, in response to what Jesus has done for us, all right, how do we respond? We respond by giving our lives to Christ. That's, That's our response. That's the fruit of what Christ has done for us, that we just respond by repenting and believing in Jesus.
And parents and grandparents, we need to know the gospel because these little ones are going to be asking us this over and over and over again. And we need to continue to impress upon them this, that we are not saved by our own works. We are saved by Jesus. If you keep on doing that and doing that and doing that, eventually, Lord willing, and to God's glory, the Father will draw them and they will be saved. But if we keep just reading Bible stories, cloaked in moralism and good deeds and stuff and things like that, but we forsake the message of the gospel in that, what's going to happen is that they're going to be raised believing that if I can just be like Abraham or be like David, or if I can just be like one of those guys, do awesome, mighty, good things, then I'll go to heaven. We're missing the whole point of Scripture is that not one of them could do anything apart from God. Not one of them. And we need to remember that.